Hello, everyone, and thank you for the download. It's Friday, March 6th, or Saturday, March 7th, or Sunday, March 8th. I really don't know when this is going to come out. Uh, this is episode 18 of the Marty Called Podcast. I'm Tim Grassy, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Assault Nasaki. What's up, Josh? It's Thursday, Tim. Let's not lie to the <laughs> listeners right out of the gate. <laughs> we pre-record these. Don't tell anybody. And uh, Skipper Ben, what's up, Ben? I got like 15 minutes. Let's move this along. Okay. Uh, real quick, we've got our topics. Uh, Ben's going to uh, Disney in April. Iger's replaced with Chapek. Jungle Cruise is sinking, and Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway is open. Uh, you guys ready to wrap the show? Talk it's to you next been a good time. Utilidors.com. <laughs> second dose for savings. Have a nice day. Whoop, whoop. At real Skipper Ben. <laughs> All right, that's the show. You guys ready for episode nineteen? <laughs> <laughs> These things just write themselves. Uh, <laughs> in all seriousness, uh, Ben, you just booked your fast passes this morning for an upcoming trip. Uh, I did. How was that I, adventure? I love waking up at 5.55 in the morning just to <laughs> have an app crash over and over again, and I'm spending 20 minutes to, to, to pull three things. But uh, mission accomplished. I did uh, I did get three fast passes. I, I actually somewhere had a free one-day park pass okay. that uh, is a commemorative ticket from the grand opening of the Tower of Terror. Wow. Uh, it dates way back, but uh, considering how the parks have been recently and how busy, especially the weekends have been, I said, screw that, because uh, if I were to use that, I would have to, uh, we called into Disney, we, we could get it the day before, I could go to Guest Relations the day before uh. and get it, but at that point, I think my you know options in the park would be uh, Voyage of the Little Mermaid and meeting um, Olaf twice, and <laughs> that's that's just not it, so... Unfortunately, I did buy a one-day, one-park ticket at peak pricing, uh, just so... <laughs> what, did just that, so what did that set you back? <laughs> yeah, let's go, go ahead and quantify that for us, would you? <laughs> so, so I can ride three rides that I've done like a thousand times each. I paid $160 uh, to oh, nice. a- after tax. So, wow. Uh, but... I do have a fast pass for Tower of Terror, Rock and Roller Coaster, and Star Tours, so I well, think it's worth it, right? <laughs> so the the good thing is the one day ticket that you had for uh, that was for the Tower of Terror opening that would have only allowed you to ride Tower of Terror and Star Tours. <laughs> Anything else that was opened after that, they wouldn't have let you on. So yeah, I, and actually, they wouldn't let you on Star Tours because it would have been the uh, old version. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, Jesus. I, I, it's a it's really dumb for me to probably have done that, but um, we're there for one day and. I don't know. I, I and that ticket it, expires I'm, too, right? My ticket. Yeah. Yeah. So if I don't use it that day, I'm screwed. So <laughs> I don't think that's. I don't think that's entirely true. I think if you don't use it, you can. I think you need to act within 14 days, and you I, can I, get it like a credit or something. Well, it said something on there about being able to change the ticket and who it's attributed to. Twenty, uh, but I had to do it within 24 hours of okay, so it's not it being used. So there is there is a little leeway that. Uh, if we decide not to go or something, I think I can do a little switch up on it. But uh, dang it, we're going. We're gonna we're gonna go out there. We're actually going. Uh, Derek Bergen's gonna love this. We're going out for WrestleMania that weekend okay. in Tampa. So uh, we're flying in on Friday afternoon. Gonna hit Disney Springs for dinner that night and not do anything else since we have to wake up at like three in the morning to get to uh, Hollywood Studios to try to get a boarding group for Rise of the Resistance. Which, based on the last couple of days. Uh, Things are looking good. I, it's, I've been it's doing stressed. better. Yeah, uh, there, there actually might be a possibility that we uh, realistically get on there, but we're we're not going to do anything late that Friday night, so we uh, can get up early, get over there, and and hopefully get on that, and uh, then we'll go to, the, to Tampa for WrestleMania on Sunday, and then on Monday we fly back out, but we don't fly back until uh, really late on uh, Monday night, so we're going to hit uh, Universal for a few hours okay. and uh, have some fun over there. So 
uh, yeah, 30 days, get to get back out there and get to get to do some of the new stuff. So very excited about it. It's, I, I, I too am about to go on a theme park trip next week and I bought a season pass. Oh boy. And it, it was for a regional park. It was for Dollywood. But I can report with, with complete truth and a huge smile that I paid $1 less for my season pass than <laughs> Ben did for his one-day ticket. I'm not trying uh, to make a joke here. Uh, are they going to go ahead and close the Tennessee tornado attraction that they have there? Yeah, so I, I posted that in the group. I, I legitimately was Googling for news the, the yeah. day, the morning after the, you know, the tornadoes hit Tennessee, which is not truly tragic. Not downer, and, but... I mean, not something that I'm looking at all to make a joke about. But, um, you know, when I Googled Tennessee tornado, the sec and granted, I do a lot of theme park Googling, so... It, there's going to be some bias on my personal search results toward Mostly that. Mostly flashmountain.com. True. <laughs> uh, but the second return on the list, and I didn't even realize it, was Dollywood. Uh, it, and it, and the, the only, you know how you, you get like a partial view of the page when you look at the search results, like the first sentence? And I thought it was Dollywood commenting on the park opening and yeah. as a consequence of the tornadoes. And I read it and it's like, what happens when a twister blows through a Tennessee town? And I'm like, this is a weird n way to write this narrative. And then I realized they were talking about the attraction here. I'd, I'd ridden it, but I totally forgot the name of it. Um, yeah, that's one of those things. So in my business class that I teach, I, I do a module on marketing and how sometimes history unfolds in a way that's unfortunate. And there was a diet candy in the late seventies called AIDS. And then, you know, the AIDS virus came out. I think you talked about this last show. It, but it's just, it never stops being good. It's like, yeah, I lost 30 pounds with AIDS. It's like, yeah, we'll do that to you. So I, I feel like the uh, the Tennessee tornado might be in the same vein there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good value for your season pass, though. It's, it's you know. Yeah. You can't. When you're start, I, I, I have season passes to Six Flags Over Texas. We live 15 minutes from it. I drive to, past it to and from work every single day. Uh, it's a great little regional park, uh, tons of great attractions, and myself, my wife, and my two kids all have season passes that come with free parking, and it's a $25 hit on my bank account every month. So yeah. uh, you, you average that out, it's $75 for season passes with free parking. Uh, yeah, you can't say no. For your regional park, you can't, and, and we use it all the time, So, uh, which just Six makes that flags. It makes that pill to swallow when you're buying Disney tickets that much tougher. I you know everything's a lot better to, you know quality wise. I don't I wouldn't necessarily say attractions wise the theming of the attractions are better, but I mean the Six Flags <laughs> no here, definitely the, not. But yeah, yeah, but like the the Texas Giant Coaster, Disney has nothing that that stands up even close to the thrill coaster like that. That's that at this regional park that I'm paying you know dollars to get to experience every month. So uh, I, I don't. I don't know what kind of price you put on climate, but 61 degrees in pure sunshine is worth a lot to me. And in that respect, yeah. <laughs> Walt Disney World is playing a, a distant second place to Dollywood in that regard. For sure. The uh, the value for a Six Flags thing, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've gone to a Six Flags park and just been wildly disappointed by a number of things. But when you can basically get a season pass for less than two park days, um, if, it's a, if it's your local park, Certainly don't begrudge anybody from doing that. It's a good yeah. form of entertainment, especially if you love thrill rides. Uh, other than uh, than Cedar Point, their thrill ride uh, lineup in most of these parks is well, phenomenal. And this is the sixth year in a row that they've committed to adding one major attraction to every park. 
Uh, so they've done a great job of putting money back into the places. It, you know, it went through a lull where, especially our park here, it was. It seemed like years and years and years between getting new attraction, and having anything refurbished. But some new management went into that company, and they had a new philosophy of reinvesting into the parks. And they've been doing that now, like I said, six years. That we're not talking about like a little carousel here and there. We're talking about major coasters, major thrill rides, and they they commit to doing it every year. I don't know if you guys do. You guys have bathrooms. Watched- <laughs> yeah, Tangle Bathroom. Uh, they put out a great YouTube video every year with the CEO of the company. It's always themed and, and hilarious, and it's them introducing what new ride is going into each and every park around the world. Uh, maybe I'll share that next time the next one comes up here uh, in, in our group. But w- w- when the parks are cheap and they're actually investing to put new stuff in there to keep you coming back, it's hard to say no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anytime that I uh – I think with Six Flags, and Ben, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that your season pass there actually works for any Six Flags. Any so Six Flags. We use yeah. Six Flags New England all, uh, all the time. Lisa and the girls uh, go to Massachusetts for a month every summer. And yeah, and it's they, one good ride. If you ever uh, want to be shot and killed, there's a Six Flags park in Atlanta that you might find interesting. <laughs> I was accosted by a security guard in the parking lot there. <laughs> True story. To that, uh, to that point, Ben, they, uh, Six Flags in New England has one good ride, and it's actually a phenomenal ride. Uh, their Superman coaster is on The Superman coaster is fantastic. It, but, uh, it is a great coaster. But uh, outside of that, I mean, it's it's no spending $160 to make sure you get to ride <laughs> Tower and Coaster and Have Star you Tours. advertised that across? I would like to know after this trip how many attractions that you do and what the actual <laughs> cost for attraction is. I, we, I, th- I will do that. We will completely break that down. I will keep track and we'll, uh, we'll bring that up on the next show after I get back. <laughs> for sure. Why don't, why don't we continue on with Hollywood Studios as opposed to some of the other topics that we mentioned just because we're fresh in the, uh, the mind of it. Uh, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway opened earlier this week. Uh, that is a tough attraction to say if you've been drinking. I don't know if you guys have tried it, but uh, it's going to be one away railway very, very quickly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, as Bar- I get older, Barbara Walters won't be able to say it. <laughs> um, <laughs> We've none of us have ridden it. Uh, I believe we've all watched um, point of views and Gary's three sixty video of it. Yep. Uh, what what are your first impressions based on a YouTube video, which is the only way to enjoy attractions? <laughs> all right, so I, I have a few thoughts on this. One, obviously, I love Disney. I think everyone who's listened to this knows that. What some listeners might not know is I also love trains. So you would think that this would Choo-choo's. be. I am predisposed to loving this attraction, right? Well, Can you call out, them choo-choos really. for the rest of this, please? No, I, I care about <laughs> trades. I will not degrade myself. Um, so I haven't been excited about this. I've been very curious about it, though, just because, you know, Great Movie Ride was a iconic attraction. It's It's got a very big show building. You know, we, we, we sort of saw footage inside of it from that uh, numbskull that got arrested and then acquitted for or, or pl- <laughs> pled out for stealing whatever the hell that he was accused of stealing. You know, so it's been it's been kind of like on my mind as to what this thing's going to be. Um, and I saw the ride through and honestly, a couple of things come to mind. One is that attractions that are very heavily screen based, I don't think they translate well to being videoed. Um, you know, there's a reason that when you're making a movie, you take a video of live actors and not, you know, action on the screen for the most part. A great example is flight of passage, not to interrupt you, but if you watch a video of that versus, actually experiencing it, it's totally different. 
Okay, I haven't experienced it, so I can't comment on that, but I, I certainly take your word for it. So my first thought is that whatever impression I took away from the video is probably less than what it would be experiencing it in real life, even though I don't think that the kinesthetics of that ride are a big deal. Like the, I don't think the motion itself is a huge contributor to it, although it's I'm sure it's something. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't think it's terrible. My, my real impression is that it's just probably not a worthy successor to great movie ride and that it would have been a phenomenal addition to great movie yeah. ride. But you know, Disney, when they make these choices to replace iconic attractions, they are, they are, it is, it is fair for us, I think, to compare what they put in to what it yeah. replaced. You have to. And in this case, again, w without having the credibility of actually having written it, my impression is that this is at best I think you're giving it a lot of, I think I have to really stretch my opinion to say that it's a worthy successor based on what I saw. I don't think it's terrible. I think it's probably fine, but if this were an add on, it would have been a real nice plus for the park, but instead it's, it's, it's a real question mark in my mind at this point. Ben, same yeah. question. So I've maybe been guilty of overhyping this ride, especially to my family uh, here. <laughs> I want this to be very good. I wanted it to be very good. Uh, and, and once, to, I think is probably the still uh, the, the the right way to put it since I haven't done it myself. Uh, when the POV came on and the uh, the link that you shared in the group, we fired it up on the big screen and got the kids and the wife around, and we we started watching it. So we were watching it on a on a good platform. We weren't watching it on our phones or a small computer. You know, we, we were giving it the the uh, the biggest effect that we possibly could to to experience it. And did you all sit in swivel chairs to like move around the room? <laughs> we, we did. We did. Uh, <laughs> The thing that I took away from it, though, was the uh, confused faces, not only from my <laughs> wife and my kids, but also myself. Huh? Uh, and about halfway through the ride, all I could think was, they're going to make so much fun of me here in a few minutes when this video is over, because uh, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't living up to what we wanted. Uh, and, and and so just on my first impressions of watching the video, I guess underwhelmed was is the best yeah. way to put it. Now, yeah. I completely, you know, reading some of the other reviews and some of the people who did it in person and them saying that it just videotapes very poorly, I completely believe that. I, I can totally understand that. So I am not ready to, you know, judge this ride whatsoever at all. I'm, I'm not judging the ride. I'm judging the video. Uh the, 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 I want to see the effects for myself. I want to see, you know, the the how large those rooms are, how large everything is around you. Uh, the one thing I will say about it that I think is fair to, to judge it on is, and I I guess we're going into spoilers territory. We're assuming yeah, everybody yeah, has yep. seen this. I don't understand what the hell is going on in it. I'm not it, sure you're that, supposed to. I, I it, it just seems like one thing after another with no coherent storyline whatsoever. Uh, connecting anything, and I granted, I guarantee, I understand it's based on a cartoon and the cartoon world and, and things like that happen in animated shorts. But there, I think that's just, the runaway part. Maybe, but I, I mean, think of like the uh, like the batshit crazy Jessica Rabbit and Roger and Roger Rabbit. Um, that yeah, they, they actually play tested Mickey and Minnie's batshit crazy <laughs> fucking nightmare railway, but they I mean, like, decided to change the name of the from, like, from like that sequence in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, if you know what I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah like, it's it's almost Tim Burton esque to me, where you you feel like you're doing drugs when you watch it, even if you're not. Yeah, but it's that, there's some like what? Pinocchio's uh, uh, adventure vibes with the uh, carnival scene. Um, there, so 
I understand where it's bouncing from one scene to another and trying to get a lot, uh, a lot in there. So yeah, the, the true narrative of it, we're, we're used to book report rides. That's part of the problem. Um, so I almost think of it as like, this is an experience of you're just being thrown into the middle of several Mickey Mouse shorts and each scene is its own like 12 second short. You know what I mean? But and you know, I agree. It, to some degree, though, I, I think that this is a testament to how successful Disney has been, because certainly what put Walt Disney on the map was Mickey Mouse, mm-hmm. but the Disney universe has expanded and grown and matured so far beyond that now that I, I'm not sure that most contemporary guests are really aware of Mickey Mouse shorts as being a thing. And maybe that maybe that gives us value, and maybe that's. You know, I, I feel like such a hypocrite here because, you know, I'm always talking about not, you know, turning our back on the history of, of Disney and the parks and everything. So so I don't know. But I, I just I think that there's probably not much context in the, on the, you know, with respect to the average guest. I don't think most people have any clue what the hell's going on here. Ben, uh, with the, your daughters might be a little bit too old for those shorts, but uh, they, it, they they absolutely love the new shorts. Okay. So. So, so to that point, uh, Josh, these are very, very popular with children. Uh, this this line of shorts. Um, but having said that, even though that it's shocks not nece- me, even, even though it's not necessarily in your world or in my world yet, um, Mickey Mouse still very much is in the zeitgeist. So it might not be this version of Mich- of Mickey Mouse, but for me, I look at this uh, after seeing it uh, in a video. Is this is Hollywood Studios' version of It's a Small World? And yeah, I definitely see that. It, it need, Hollywood Studios only has one other attraction that doesn't have a high requirement. And this replaced another attraction that didn't have a high requirement either. So I don't begrudge them for not having it be a more thrilling attraction. I don't think any of us are asking for that. Nope. Um, when comparing this to the other heavily screen-based trackless ride that is going into Epcot, uh, just from uh, solely a YouTube video, this one intrigues me more. Um, but I think they're, they both look like solid D-ticket additions that are high-capacity additions to, at least in the studios, where something like that is needed. Um, were either of you surprised? I'm looking forward to experiencing it. Were either of you surprised that the trackless vehicles didn't seem to do more in the no. attraction? Like- so I, I, I called for the beginning. I said, this is going to be an attraction that has train tracks painted on the ground, and you're going to start yeah. off as a train, and it's going to break off them. That, to me, when you talk about a train-based attraction and a trackless vehicle, if you don't exploit the opportunity to take the train off the tracks, like, what are you even doing? So it's pretty much what I thought. But there was, like, I guess the one that really got me was, like, the torn- tornado scene, where there's a tornado in the middle of the room, and you would think with four ride vehicles, you'd, yeah. you'd go around the tornado. And it's yes. just yeah. like you, you move past it, and then you're into the next room, and you don't really spend much time. With you. There, there were uh, deals well, you like get, that, I think. You better get used to that value Imagineering with JPEG at the helm. <laughs> oh. So uh, to, to that point, like the trackless ride system is a great ride system, but not always best utilized. And I've said this on Ratatouille as well, that Ratatouille doesn't necessarily need that ride system. Um where I've seen it best used is Pooh's Honey Hunt and Mystic Manor, where in Mystic Manor, especially at the finale sequence of that, you're basically spinning around that room as the room spins out of control and effectively yeah, a tornado yeah, like it is. Uh, tears away the wall. A similar effect happens in Rise of the Resistance. Um, yeah. In this case, I, Ben, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that tornado probably should have been in the center of the room and your four vehicles should have circled it and possibly spun yeah. a little bit. But... 
there are there are uses of the technology where you don't necessarily know where you're going. But the best sequence in Pooh's Honey Hunt is the Heffalump and Woozle scene where your vehicle is just moving around the scene without any real semblance of logic. And every time you ride, it's different. Um, yeah. And then what they did over in California on that Luigi's uh, what is it called? Uh, is it Rollicking Roadsters or is that whatever the yeah whatever the Luigi's ride is? Frolicking um, saucers. Me. Yeah, that the frolicking saucers. I don't believe that's correct. Um, <laughs> they and a lot of times they have the vehicles moving in concert with one another, which doesn't really show off the technology because you're not. There's no surprise in the movement. Everything is moving together consistently, even though it's there's essentially no track. The, it's essentially the Daisy scene. Exactly. So I'll, I'll that, play the devil's advocate on that when you're done. Uh, I mean, it's it's showing off the technology, but not from a not from a fun standpoint. Uh, I much preferred riding Aquatopia in Tokyo than I did the Luigi's ride in California, simply because the Aquatopia ride I didn't know which direction I was going in, and that's the type of stuff that with this trackless ride system you can you can play that game. And a tornado sequence doesn't even necessarily need to be spinning. You just need to be kind of moving around the room out of control. And, this, and that's this what did, I wanted. This did feel very much on the track. It did feel like you were just following one after another, going from scene to scene. To but, me. See, for me, I think the way that uses technology, let's put ourselves in the, in the shoes of, a, of an ordinary guest who doesn't have any clue that such a thing exists called a trackless ride system. Mm-hmm. Mistake number one is that they painted the tracks on the floor instead of them having be physical tracks. If you create an impression from the beginning that this train, A, is on a track, and B, that all the cars are connected to each other, then when you get to that point in the ride where they all break and go separate directions, that is a hugely impactful moment. It but looks like pa- that trick is satisfied, though. Yeah, but no one's going to look at what they've got on the... Again, it's on the video, so I, you know, I'm trying to... you know check myself before I wreck myself But you myself see a here. train pull up on the painted track, so it looks very much like that is the intent, that it is going to follow a track, and it does for a short uh-huh. period of time. Uh-huh. But that's different than believing... I'm actually to imagine that you go to Six Flags Park for the same time, and you get on a roller coaster where you are literally convinced that that train is on a steel track, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, you go in a different direction. I mean, you know, Expedition Everest does this to some degree. I mean, that, if that is part of the effect, you have to be really compelling... With how, even if the track is only physical in the station, and then you know it transitions to painted once you you know get into a darker scene, I could live with that. But to have it painted there where you're standing in line looking down at it in, in load, to me just says that they didn't really put enough effort into into selling that effect. Which I think that's the whole point. That's that's the whole thing is if you know you're on a trackless ride system and that you can go in any direction, then going in any direction isn't in it in any way exciting. But if you think but, that you're on a track and you go in a different direction, that's what's going to have the impact. To your own scenario, you're saying the average guest doesn't necessarily know about the concept of a trackless ride system. So Disney is painting a track on the floor. I don't know that that the average guest is going to think too hard, too hard about that and think this is nothing more than a train system. Maybe. So, but I, I, while I don't think that the average guest is aware of the concept of a trackless ride system, I do think the average guest is aware of the concept of paint. Okay. Uh, even still, the thought process of you're going along a track, I mean, I, I think you might be overthinking it because we know the ride system. Maybe. Um, and yeah. uh, this this uh, comment is for uh, for Mark uh, Glorioso. Uh, let's agree to disagree on this. <laughs> the average guest is a dumbass. 
Very that true. Pays, a, pays 160 <laughs> for a one day one part <laughs> ticket. That's a good Very point. Very true. Yeah. Ben, are you familiar with paint? <laughs> uh, what? I'm vaguely familiar with the concept. I, I know paint chips. Exactly. Eat them. Eat them. They are delicious. <laughs> Only the long uh, ones. One thing I'd like to uh, figure out, and, and I don't want this to come across like I'm hating the ride by any means. I I am still insanely excited to ride this uh, when we get there. I, I uh, Behind Rise, obviously, I put this up there with the next thing I want to do more, even more than Smuggler's Run, and I'm excited for Smuggler's Run as well. But um, after seeing this ride, I know there were some rumors out there as the ride was being developed about the attraction actually not taking up the full amount of space that the Great yeah. Movie Ride building uh, provided. Uh, what do you guys think? How much of that was actually used for this ride? I wonder if, we'll, you know, if there's any way to quantify that, because that goes back to our argument of did they really need to take out the movie ride to yeah. put this attraction in? Is it in you know a confined enough space that they could uh, maybe use the courtyard area to put something in the queue in the animation building and then build a small building out back, you know, relatively small building, a decent side building, whatever, uh, to put this attraction in there while keeping, uh, you know, I, I think eventually updating the movie ride, getting out of some of the uh, contracts that they had for the old films that, that, that they might've had some issues with, but even though they own some of those films now, uh, did, what do you think on the size of this attraction? How do you think that played out in that show building? I think it's very hard to tell. It does not use the full show building. Um, I, I know, uh, Martin Smith posted like a percentage of it, even possibly even square footage of what the, uh, great movie ride utilized versus what Mickey and Minnie's runaway, runaway railway. See, I'm already having problems saying it, uh, (laughs) utilized. It did not utilize, it didn't use, I can't speak tonight. Um, (laughs) it didn't use the full building, but let's say it used 80% of it. Regardless, there is enough room elsewhere in that park to have built this from scratch. And we've talked about this uh, in a few different scenarios. I think when we were uh, spending the next-gen money on on better items, uh, we suggested that you do a substantial update to the Great Movie Ride. Because while it is a classic attraction, when it closed, it was in desperate need of updates. I think mm-hmm. we can all agree with that. Yeah. And... Perhaps even the move, if it was a operational cost-cutting thing where they didn't want to have uh, multiple live actors on the attraction, the update could have eliminated those roles. Um, not to say that I'm uh, fully in support of that, but uh, those are types of things that could have been done. And I think that the move for Great Movie Ride was to close it when Toy Story Land opened up and then build this elsewhere, be it an animation courtyard or even Storybook Circus, because it's not like the Magic Kingdom couldn't use the capacity boost either. Um, Do you think this could become a timeless attraction, though? It's tough, because we we hesitate to say that on anything screen-based, right? Yeah. Um, That and this stylized version of Mickey probably does have a shelf life even as popular as these shorts are uh they these types of things do have a shelf life um but because it's like it, cup had the ride is what it, that's <laughs> like what i was thinking about the whole time i was watching it because the because it's primarily screen-based though I would think that in theory, it's not that difficult to update this to a different version of Mickey. <laughs> in theory. All it takes is money. I, well, yes. But, like, what do we have for animatronics in here? There's uh, the two Mickey and Minnie at the beginning. 
there's a Daisy animatronic. Uh, there's 50 stormtroopers. There is <laughs> Mickey, Minnie, and Pluto at the end. And I don't know if Pete is an animatronic in the uh, in the scene, um, in the city scene. But there aren't many animatronics that are – none of them are particularly complicated. No. And you're – I believe it's projected faces on most of them. So you can kind of change that stylization relatively easily as well. So um, timeless, classic, those are tough words to say. And so often just age makes something a classic. You know what but I mean? Will, will this attraction go down, though, as the best ride at Walt Disney World to do while under the influence of a controlled substance? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's going to compete with It's a Small World. It's um, got to be up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So many colors. Some positives here. Uh, we, I mean, I don't know about you guys. I anticipated Hollywood Studios to be a mess. Uh, you can take your reasons why, but... The crowds the last couple of days when this opened mm-hmm. were pretty reasonable. Uh, yep. It opened with like a 300-minute wait, but by uh, you know a few hours later, it was, hover- it was hovering around two hours. It's been in that like 90 to 120 minutes uh, these first few days. And for a brand new attraction, uh, a big reason why is it's very efficient. But the rest of the park is also uh, being helped significantly by this. Yep. So. Uh, perhaps we are overstating the need from a capacity standpoint for the great movie ride. I don't think we are, but um, Hollywood Studios has had a great couple of days between that and better operations for Rise of the Resistance. Yeah, Gary was blown away by how how smoothly that ride ran. He said the line never stopped moving. The estimated wait time was way longer than his actual wait. So at least from an operational standpoint, this thing seems to be swallowing people and taking names and... uh, whatever other sort of <laughs> success euphemism you want to throw at it. We talk about stuff like that on the show, the operation side of things. So this loads four vehicles at once. Um, each vehicle, the rows look to be around the same as like a frozen ever after boat. So you're probably, lo- it's the equivalent of loading two frozen ever after boats at the same time. Uh, and I don't know if the dispatches are the same as what they do on frozen ever after, but if that's the case, then it's well over 2000, but I don't think that's the, I don't think that's fully the case. It's probably 1800 to 2000 an hour, which for, uh, new Disney attractions, that's high. Um, uh, rise of the resistance is inconsistently hitting 1500 uh, for the longest time was hitting about a thousand. And I think the goal is 1700 um, smugglers run is about 1700, but uh, something like uh, flight of passage over in animal kingdom is probably 12 to 1300. So uh, when it's a family friendly ride without a high requirement, you really want to see it have those haunted mansion pirates of the Caribbean capacity numbers. And it looks like this one is pretty efficient. Rise has been running so good that it can close down two hours early. Yes. It got through all of its boarding groups. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm looking through my uh, my long rumor thread for um, uh, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Uh, back in February of 2018, Martin said capacity should be in the 1,800 to 2,000 guests per hour range. Um, I don't know if I have anything on how much of the building it's taking up, but uh, he's usually pretty good about posting maps and his ultimate tribute. So I'm sure we'll get one for great movie rides soon enough and we'll know about how much space Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway is taking up relative to the great movie ride. Um, Did you guys, when you were watching the video, find yourselves trying to find parallels to the great movie ride? I mean, there's some right at the beginning, but uh, I don't know if they used any of the same walls. What we saw for... Uh, the douchebag that was uh, yeah. going in there was a gutted was building, well gutted. But yeah. 
I wonder if there's some some stuff that well, we didn't ju- see. Just what they did in the uh, queue area was enough to keep me happy. It seems like every time I walk through there, I'll walk through there in the future. Uh, I'll have that little hint of the great movie ride, you know, there to, to, to remind me of what, what used to be there. So I, we haven't talked about the queue or the pre-show area, but I was very impressed with what they did uh, in both those spots. Yeah, it, lo- it looks good. I think they, uh, for people that haven't seen it and we're ruining it for you, it does appear that the indoor queue portion, which is very small, mm-hmm. remains largely unchanged other than the attraction posters are Mickey short attraction posters. Did you guys notice anything different? Nope. It looked nope. very, very familiar. And in fact, some of the construction photos that we saw uh, sort of suggested that because we saw the interior of the building basically like with saran wrap on it trying to protect it while construction was going on. So it, it definitely looked as though the, the intent from the beginning was to keep that the same. Well, maybe it's just me, but I always had an oh wow moment every time I walked into the Chinese theater and just how large that room is yeah. before you start going into the switchbacks. Yeah. Uh, and so for that to still be there, that's that makes me happy. That was so, a good choice. When they when they redid Imagination, and, and a lot of people, this is really at the cusp of what I can remember, and I'm a couple years older than you guys, but the, the entrance to Imagination used to be a very grand space like that with all these murals on the walls. It was very, very open, totally different than it is now. And I think one of the big losses when they changed that ride is that they they just cut into the grandeur by putting up walls and, you know, they took this amazing (laughs) one of a kind space that didn't exist anywhere in the world. And they turned it into a fake office. Like, no, that's a bad choice. So I'm glad that when they had a similar grand space, um, with the Grauman theater that they, that they preserved that. I think that that was a smart move. What's interesting about the, because they could have got rid of the Grauman theater as, as like a park icon. Yeah. They could, they could have gotten rid of it. I think the reason why they kept it is because Star Wars premiered in the Grauman's Chinese Theater. I think mm. that they can tie a big area of the park back to that theater and plan like it was the intent all along. Um, with well, did, the, wasn't the hat the, the, the icon for a while? Did, wasn't that sort of the yeah. unofficial icon? And they, get, they got rid of that a couple years ago. So I, I, from a branding perspective, they probably also weren't in a hurry to, to, to go to icon number three for that park. Well, and the, part of the talk on that was what the rights issue with the uh, front of the Chinese theater. So they were preparing if they didn't. I think that was a BS. You think so? I think so. I mean, I don't know for sure, but um, it, it didn't seem like it didn't well, seem like they would be able to position. use it. The hat was supposed to be outside of the front of the park, correct? Yeah, so there was there's a few different concepts of the hat, one of which had the hat uh, totally upright uh, like it does in the actual animation building in California, and then the ears would be uh, Ferris wheels that look like film reels. That was one of the early concepts of it. And then they decided, nope, we're going to make it a pin shop instead. Um, <laughs> and it was, I guess, like the entrance area was supposed to be a, like a museum of sorts, where you'd go into the museum underneath the hat, or you could ride either of the Ferris wheels. But um, right now, I believe um, for like a park icon, they're using Tower of Terror. But uh, <laughs> I-, I could see them bringing it back uh, to the Great Movie Ride or the the uh, Grauman's facade. But with with regards to this attraction itself. Um, did you guys? I was under the impression that there was going to be two pre-show rooms. Are there only? Is there only the one that was the original, like slanted down area, or are, or are there two? I thought it was split off to two as well, but I can't. I couldn't tell from the video, and I haven't researched enough to see if there were two. But that that room definitely seems smaller 
than yeah, so that maybe, large theater. So I, I think that probably is the two. So I, maybe that's what they changed the area of where the grade is. I, I mean, I don't know. We can ask somebody that's been on their ride uh, or, you know, have done some actual show prep to determine how it's laid out. But I think there's two pre-show rooms that lead into that um, uh, small section of switchbacks before you board the attraction. But, speaking of speaking of the pre-show room, one one minor thing that I really, really love that most people probably just overlooked, but as somebody who was a big fan of Chris in the Rock and Roller Coaster uh, pre-show, yep. I, lo- I love how Goofy calls out to the cast member to let people on, and there's actually yeah. a response from the cast member in that pre-show. Uh, it's small, it's minor, it's two lines, but I love that little interaction uh, he hand him a less between pong? the two to get the people to go through and, and actually go into the uh, boarding area. Yeah, why he's wearing, uh, holding a guitar, I don't know, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you, Ben. I think that uh, I think or that I is a good thing. Else anymore. Ben is still talking despite the fact that we're agreeing <laughs> with him. He thinks we're not. <laughs> he's... He's, he's, he's screwing up the number one rule of arguing. He's still arguing after he won. I hope you two are talking and I'm interrupting everything. You absolutely are. This is going to be killer pod. We're not going to edit any of this out. Uh, uh, I'm back. You there? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to start singing the, uh, uh, the song from the attraction, which I couldn't remember, which I don't know if that says anything since that was supposed to be an iconic tune that we're going to all think of when it comes, you know, compared to like, it's a small world in, uh, I'm sure it'll stick with our stick in our heads, but it didn't seem as uh, as catchy as it was built up to be. Probably feel, a good thing, to be honest. I feel like one of the tricks to making a catchy tune is not trying to make a catchy tune. <laughs> not telling everybody you're writing a catchy song. <laughs> yeah, prepare for an earworm. That, yeah. that's that's never how that's happened to me. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, regarding this, uh, on the whole, for Hollywood Studios. I do think it is the type of attraction that that park needed, a family-friendly major attraction to that park, not a whip Without ride a like, like yep. Alien Swirling Saucers. Uh, that attraction, uh, that park's attraction lineup was very thrill-heavy, and uh, pretty much, as I said before, everything has a high requirement in that park. Even Alien Swirling Saucers has a, has a high requirement. So it's this and Toy Story Mania, and then uh, half a dozen shows, if you... Uh, if you have any little ones, which uh, my, my next trip will include those. So um, I'm looking forward to experiencing it. I would say maybe it's dropped off a little bit after seeing the video of it, but um, I, I do want to see it in person to fully judge it. I'm not going to uh, to shit on it too much right now because I think there are some, some cool components of it, some quick transitions that, yes, are possible with film, but still seeing them in – in uh, in real life is going to change it. So uh, I'm I looking think, forward to experiencing it. I, I think it's safe to say it's not a disaster. No. You know, it, it's not a, a mission space sort of thing where it, it, you know, it's, it's great movie ride was a good attraction. It was solid. It had, despite the fact that it, it's a little bit of a, a paradox, I think, because while it did need updating, it also was rooted somewhat so far back in history that it had a timelessness to it in large degree. Um, that I think helped it. You know, it's not Horizons. Let's put it that way. If this replaced Voyage of the Little Mermaid and they did a major great movie ride update um, that we all approved of, would we be would be crapping on would we be crapping on it at all? No, I don't and think if, we would. And if it were an addition, we wouldn't be crap. Let's make it even simpler. If it were an addition, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be. 
you know, it's not a seminal work for the time period. It's not going to be a piece that we come back to and say, you know, that they, that they broke new ground or that they, it, you know, it, from a technology standpoint, it's not revolutionary. From a storytelling standpoint, it's not revolutionary. It's fine. But I don't think that it, it's, you know, again, and I, I said this before, but, you know, when Disney replaces a ride, what comes next should be better than what came before it. That's what progress is. And Disney is very much, uh, as a man, was a person about progress. The parks are about that in large degree. And when you take a step back, it, it is going to be a tough pill to swallow. And this is probably a sidestep, I think. is probably if, if, I, if I had to guess how it's going to be judged in the annals of history, I think it's probably either an equivalent ride or a slight step back. But I don't think... That's- I think it's going to be something that people aren't talking about much in a year. That's pronounced anals. That's correct. I, my, my bad. <laughs> Would you guys consider Peter Pan's flight a classic? Yes. yes. Is it because of age or is it because of quality? Uh, both. Well, that's important because you have to put quality in the context of age. For what it was at the time that it debuted, mm-hmm. it was an incredibly high quality ride. It's yep. still a high quality, and I know. I mean, you know, I've spent enough time talking to you. I know where you stand on this. This is not a situation <laughs> where uh, this is not a situation where I'm talking to somebody and I'm waiting to see what the position is. I want to fight is. somebody. Damn it! <laughs> but I think it, it, start the e-ticket again. If I'm going to put anything in your mouth, it's not going to be words. So correct me if I'm wrong. But my my sense. I hope it's a hoagie. (laughs) You call it whatever you want, baby. Um, My sense is that your primary issue with Peter Pan is that it's overrated, which I think looks every bit that it's 49 years old. But to some degree, that's my primary issue with this. But I reject that to some degree as a as a relevant metric. Construct of time. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not because what you're basically saying is that. Your subjective opinion is different than the objectively measurable subjective opinion of many other people, and therefore there's a problem. Which the primary viewership of that attraction is kids, and we established earlier on in the show that kids are stupid. Okay, I, I, my case. I concur that kids are stupid. <laughs> However, as someone who's waited in line for that attraction many, many times, I can assure you there are a lot of adults in that line as well. It is, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna double back. I was on going somewhere with this line of thought, but. Uh, well, let me say one more thing before I before I cede the floor to you. You have quoted me. There's not many times where you've quoted me. Usually you're trying to distance yourself from my words, which I understand. I'm quoting Mitch Hedberg, not you. <laughs> that is a very deep cut for an inside joke here. It is. There's four people that are laughing right now. Uh, Peter Pan has charm. And it's one of those things yeah. that... that that old Disney attractions really engender in people. And it, it has to be that. And I think part of the, a lot, there's a lot of old Disney attractions that have charm and an incredibly high quality. Peter Pan relies almost exclusively on the charm. And I think that for some reason irritates you, which makes me <laughs> smile inside. <laughs> well, so, so to that point, like there's been a trend and Mickey and Minnie's runaway railway is no, uh, uh, stranger to this, of doing those animated faces on otherwise normal animatronics, kind of like blending the two. Uh, If they were to do that with Peter Pan's flight, I would probably not be happy. Uh I think that um, it is a plasticky world. Uh, I would much prefer animatronics updated like as much as people crap on them, the, uh, the Little Mermaid animatronics, and update that attraction that way. But the the way that I was going with this about the idea of what makes a classic attraction. Um, I would argue that great movie ride, even though that the, you know, effects in there, the, there's a multitude of things that were going on in that attraction on its last day. 
um, it felt remarkably stale to me. And I don't, that's not my complaint with Peter Pan's flight. I just think it, it's dated, but there's a difference between dated and stale and dated, as you said, uh, it, it adds charm in the case of Peter Pan's flight in the, the case of the great movie ride. It is a snapshot in time for what Disney deemed a good selection of movies in 1989. And that yeah. needed to be updated. Um, well, maybe with, so, so the, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that the great movie ride when it closed to Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway is a step forward, even though they're totally different experiences. That doesn't mean, though, that that is the correct move. I think we we're all in agreement that great movie ride needed an update. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Uh, ben? It, but but depends on what you mean by update. Uh, yeah. Swap out I, some scenes. You know, See, I, I, I think didn't think it had to. I think you could swap out effects and maybe get the same. See, the, no, the problem you need with to swap out scenes. There's, well, I, there is some genuine. Well, are you asking there. rhetorical questions? <laughs> the the problem here's the problem. I think is if you look at the spectrum of films that are in there, when you go from you know, it, okay, forget that ride. Let's just go any movies. Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, Alien. Okay, mm-hmm. there's a a line. Only two of which are in there. I know. That's why I said let's expand beyond the ride. If we go arbitrarily, I wasn't listening. <laughs> you know, there's a point at which when you are referencing things that are old, if they're old enough, they can be timeless. It's very hard yeah, for sure. something that's 15 years old to be timeless. It might become timeless one day, but but those later films and the traction were the problem. So. I almost think that if they had built the thing to where all of the films were much older, it was the golden era of film, let's say, mm-hmm. it would have been immune to the staleness that you're talking about. So, But the irony of that is, is that for that problem to resolve itself, all you actually had to do was wait a little bit. You know, At what point does Alien become a dated enough film to where it too is outside of the scope of modern films to where people don't care that it isn't current? And I think we're, we got to a, that ride was taken out at a weird point in time because we're at the cusp of where that too has become a, a, an old enough film to where people, people don't care that the alien wasn't perfectly realistic. You know, it's sort of a classic in its own right. I understand uh, alien is kind of an odd uh, thing for you to focus on simply because while alien is a very good and very popular sci-fi movie, it is not the very good and popular sci-fi movie. And that is very much in that park and very much in Disney's fold for intellectual property that they have. I don't um, think I'm star not, Wars is sci-fi for the record. I, I, I'll I'm perfectly, would you call it a space Western? I mean, like, would you, would you swap out the Western scene for it? It's fiction. We did a show about this, but there's no sci in star Wars <laughs> science fiction. Um, where's the science star Trek is sci-fi star Wars is, fantasy fair but i think you're also arguing semantics here because i'm a fucking there lawyer is, there is, <laughs> there is you, you can you can make similar arguments here that in any of these uh what are dubbed sci-fi movies there is a leap on the science there absolutely is well i reject a lot of them as being sci-fi <laughs> to be clear <laughs> <laughs> so you, you just like to argue semantics, which is what you do professionally. Well, I mean, um, I think that if you're going to put the word science in there, that there should be some science. Is that really arguing semantics? Well, <laughs> if I if I describe myself to you as being well hung and I'm not, it, is that arguing? And, oh, well, you're arguing semantics because I have a tiny dick. I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
Get that drop. I'm looking for uh, <laughs> show title. We we did <laughs> the show title. Josh is a tiny dick. <laughs> that will actually probably get more downloads than you can credit for. <laughs> Uh, we did a show on um, kind of how we would reimagine the great movie ride, and I can't figure out what the hell episode it was. I'm looking back. But, I mean, clearly we all had thoughts on it. Um, and the good thing about the way that we do this show is that we could go scene by scene on an attraction like that where each scene could be its own, like airlifted, uh, could be airlifted out and have something else swapped in. Mm -hmm. And we can make like what our perfect attraction is. Um, To your point that uh, perhaps the move on something like that was to go older, was to find something that uh, in each sequence made more sense. But um, I think that it needed to be updated. And even if it was swapping out something like Tarzan and, Maybe the uh, Footlight Parade scene, not because there's anything against Footlight Parade, but because it didn't work. Um, things like that would have helped tremendously to refresh an attraction like that. I don't think we have to worry about too much because I think things are going to come full circle. We're like five years away from our new CEO constructing the great Disney Plus movie ride uh, <laughs> in that part. Yeah. Where, the, <laughs> and, oh, where you don't wait in line, it's buffering. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny though, like uh, with, with we'll get to the new CEO and that story here in a moment. But uh, updating the Great Movie Ride would seem to be like his wet dream of a project. Episode like, nine was like, the uh, episode. <laughs> like uh, if you could tell that guy that you can put Disney IPs, whatever you want, in this attraction to retell the the, the story of the you know movies in history or our company's uh, history in in filmmaking. Uh, it seems like he would be salivating at the opportunity to do that because of just what the gift shop would look like uh, when people exited up that building. I was going to say, if you don't have a financial component to this, then I disagree with you. You, you <laughs> saved it at the end with the gift shop. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> he could have 10 different movies represented in, in a gift shop because they were all in that one attraction. But we'll if get to that soon. If companies have access to our intellectual property, they would be doing the same thing. That's what we've learned from our new Lord and Savior, Bob Chapek. What if, do you think they'll ever make a ride out of our podcast? Would that be the, <laughs> would that be the ultimate success for us? Yeah, I don't know that uh, anybody wants to ride that, but okay. I'd ride it. <laughs> ride Josh's tiny dick. <laughs> Get that drop, too. Uh, so speaking of, uh, of Bob Chapek... This is the the timing of this announcement. If unless you guys have been living under a rock, uh, Bob Iger said effective immediately. I'm handing over uh, the reins to the guy that looks like a giant penis. The exact um, quote was, "I I'm out." Yeah, he says, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, everybody has coronavirus again, making light of <laughs> tragedies. Um, Stock rates plummeting. I don't want to take the fall for it. So yep. give it to this guy. Yep. Do we think there's anything more to this from Iger's standpoint? beyond just wanting to get out before the shit totally hits the fan with uh, uh, the global economy? Yeah, I think that you got to be extraordinarily careful when you try and read the tea leaves on something like this. We're, you not, know, we're not broadcasters. We're not. Uh, how responsible do we need to be? We're not broadcasters. We're three people sitting in front of microphones, transmitting our voices across Nobody the globe. Nobody thinks we're journalists, <laughs> though. Nobody listens. I think what you meant to say is we're not talented. <laughs> that is fair. That we is technically are broadcasting. It's just bad. <laughs> um, you know, I, 
I thought about this for a little bit because I was reading some of the comments. I, I do my best to stay off Facebook, but when this happened, I went on there just to see what people were saying. And I, there was, as I suspected, no shortage of, of wild conspiracy theories as to what the cause was. And, yep. and it got me thinking. I, I've said many times on the show and others that um, there's a lot of parallels between Apple and Disney. And the biggest one in my mind is that these companies were led for many years by a founder who is extraordinarily charismatic to the point where their individual identity was incredibly entwined with the identity of the company and the minds of its mm-hmm. customers and the mind of Wall Street. And they both left the company by virtue of death, which is something that I've historically thought of as being kind of a tragic thing because in both cases they died relatively young, ostensibly before they even had a chance to do their best work. Um, and it left this void. It left companies wondering, well, what do we do now? Because they were used to having this dynamic, bigger-than-life leader. And by contrast, now we have Iger stepping out, you know, the intervivos departure. He's alive. As far as we know, he's well. Uh, and he's out. And it, it, it got me thinking because we look at the harm that can come to companies when you have a leader who's you know, synonymous with a company who passes away, uh, particularly unexpectedly. But it seems almost as though, in some ways, leaving by virtue of death eliminates one question that a lot of people intrinsically want to know, which is why, right? That's what everyone wants yeah. to know. Why now? Why? When you die, no one asks, well, why, isn't, why aren't you the seat anymore? Well, I'm dead, right? That, that eliminates that. But when someone steps aside uh, during their life, you're left wondering when. And I guess... If I had to, I have no clue whatsoever. I have no information. I don't think anyone on this call does, but I will say this. I think that as a publicly traded company, one thing that's very important to do when you have a CEO who you know is reaching the end of his tenure by his own decision is to articulate a clear succession plan and ideally explain some logic as to why the plan is what it is ahead of time so that you don't shock investors so that you don't upset, uh, you know, people. And so that you don't create a vacuum of information, which is invariably going to get filled with rumor and speculation. And it doesn't seem like Disney did Mission this. accomplished. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> by, by the narrative of Disney, what was supposed to happen was that Iger was supposed to retire five or six years ago, but it's right. like, this is a guy who's been incredibly reluctant to give up the reins despite the fact that they've announced to the world that he's leaving and all of a sudden in a world where it seems like the expectation is he's going to stay all of a sudden he steps aside so it, it does again i don't want to speculate pass a smell test it, it, it just doesn't it certainly leaves us wondering why and it could be anything it could be anything and I don't know that we have the capacity to, to make meaningful guesses as to – I don't know that matters. Let's say you guessed correctly. Yeah, what, yeah. What's, I don't know what the value of that is. But I think what we can analyze as pundits of this company, as people who are you know, armchairing things, is to say that the, the manner in which – what we can comment on is the manner in which they went about doing this. And that seems very, very ham-fisted for, a, for an organization that is as large and sophisticated as the Walt Disney Company. 
as uh, Marie will tell you, um, the the tie to Iger was political aspirations. And uh, Tuesday night, I predicted the next 48 hours for the Democratic Party relatively well. Uh, so I, I can assume that whatever I say about Iger, especially in his political aspirations, will be 100% correct because uh, nobody <laughs> saw the writing on the wall for what was going to happen to the Democratic Party after Super Tuesday. I'm not sure uh, this, this is how logic works, but okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's absolutely flawless. Uh, so anyway, so... I'm saying that obviously tongue-in-cheek. There were rumors circulating around Iger for years about him wanting to do a presidential run. And he has denied it uh, for the better part of the last four years. Um, The rumor, as far-fetched as it may sound, was that this was in anticipation of a contested DNC where he could swoop in without having to go through the primary bullshit and that is a possibility. I don't know that there is much, if any, truth to that. Will um, Christoph be his VP? That's what probably. I want to know. Okay. Probably. Uh, or the Reindeer Sven. And he has come out to, in that um, town hall the day after he, an- he made his announcement saying that uh, politics did not play into this. Take that for what you want. But yep. he, he did address that, that this was not a political uh, reason. Right. And, I mean, let's see. Like, the... You know, I don't even want to talk politics. It's not its not really the nature of our show, and it turns people off from a Disney podcast. But uh, we have to at least acknowledge that exactly what Josh said, that a company like this, you articulate a clear succession plan, and you don't do it immediately. I mean, with um, Eisner to Iger, I believe it was a six-month lead time, in part because Eisner wanted to be there for the opening of Hong Kong, I believe. Um but something like this as a sudden concession just just seems off. And the fact that it's Chapek and not Kevin Meyer also seems off. Yep. Because when you look at uh, Chapek's uh, history with the company, he's been there for 27 years. Like him or not, he has done his fair share of things with the company. He's uh, spearheaded the move from DVD to Blu-ray. He's uh, done the initial digital platform, Disney Movies Anywhere. He started um, the Disney Vault. He started the Disney Vault. All of these things uh, are a history of achievements within the company. Our objection to him is primarily the theme parks, that he has a history of slashing budgets and raising uh, prices in the parks. Uh, He very well could be more of the same for Iger, uh, or as Iger. I I will say I have a coworker. Her office is right next to mine. Uh, I've worked with her for the last 12 years, and she worked under JPEG in uh, international distribution. Physically or uh, like hierarchically? (laughs) I'm not doing that. Uh, But she adores the guy and adored working for him. He very so, well could be the nicest guy in the world, but it doesn't mean we have to be happy with the products that he put correct, out. Correct. Correct. So, I want to read a quote, if I can, from CNBC. Um, okay, go for it. And it sort of echoes the tones of Wall Street. Um, this is why Tuesday's announcement is so confusing. Disney's future is supposed to be streaming, not theme parks. Media industry right. insiders almost unanimously expected Kevin Mayer uh, to be I don't know if that's true, but yes. Yeah. Well, I hope it's not true, but, but it does. And I certainly reject that as being the correct plan for the company, but it does give, because we're in a little bit of a bubble. We're theme park mm-hmm. people, right? That's what the reason yeah. we're doing this podcast is because I love of the parks. Yeah. Well, I also don't see, Chapek, guy, I don't see Chapek's <laughs> appointment being a, being a theme park move. I don't, I don't, even though he comes from theme parks, he doesn't really come from theme parks. No. Right. Right. Theme it, parks were, not, were his path to the to the C like, level office. If they named Bob Weiss CEO, which isn't gonna happen, but like if they named Bob Weiss CEO, that's somebody that comes from theme parks. 
Uh, Chapek is a guy that comes from consumer products that happen to also have theme parks rolled in. But the projects that were approved that are being built right now, those sound like they're probably Iger and Chapek collaborative efforts. And they were done out of necessity after they, uh, we talked about it ad nauseum here, went kicking and screaming into building new attractions after the failure of next gen. So I was hoping it was going to be Gary Hall. <laughs> It'd be an interesting view. Uh, <laughs> you know, the most powerful thing you can do is what, what no one expects. So, so to that point, like what, what do we expect from a Chapek led company? Do you Gift expect shots. more of the same? Uh, do you, do you expect substantial changes from the way that Iger ran the company and the theme park uh, division? My, I think he's going to take characters out of Epcot. <laughs> that seems that seems likely. My expectation is that, much like many people going into office, that it is probably not going to be a dramatic immediate change. Probably um, not. He almost certainly got this job by towing the company line. We mm-hmm. have to remember that that big organizations are like battleships. They turn slowly. And this is a person who is steeped in the culture of upper management at Disney. And although I don't have any doubt that he has some idiosyncrasies that are his own, it almost certainly is going to take time for those to manifest in meaningful ways for us as park guests. Um, it, you can look at someone like Eisner, for example. And granted, there was the Frank Wells issue and a lot of dynamics there that are too in-depth for us to parse in a single episode. But what I think we will see for the next five years is probably more of the same. Um, probably. What comes after that, I think, will be the true revelation of, of this. That will be the Chapek legacy. And it's possible that it, it's... In fact, I would say it's probably probably probable. It's likely... <laughs> <laughs> that just does not roll out of the mouth well. Uh, I think it's likely that we are judging a very complex person who's almost certainly very intelligent um, through a pretty narrow window. And, Probably. and I, that gives me some hope because certainly some of the things we've seen are not ideal. Uh, but then again, you know, as someone who's worked in upper management at a, at a relatively big company, I know that there's been times where I had to make decisions that were extraordinarily unpopular. And had we made different decisions, all of those people who hated them would have been out of a job. So, Sometimes it's real easy to look in on a situation with a little bit of information and impute malice or incompetence onto someone when in actuality, what we were comparing reality with was a hypothetical alternative that wasn't possible. So, you know, we're just going to have to see what this guy's really all about when he has the reins. I have a little bit of a worry that we have another non-creative type in the control of a creative company. I think I'm the only one that here that has read Bob Iger's uh, memoir. Is that I've correct? read it as well. Did you? Okay. I have he, not. You, he, he remarks in there that he does not even look at himself as a creative type. He molded him. He claims he molded but ben, himself. He's, but do, he's focusing more on the creative now. He felt he focuses more, but the, he, he specifically says in there that he was not a creative type. <laughs> and I think we have another one in that. And, and granted Iger, Iger, did well for, for, for what he did. Uh, but a lot of that was through acquisitions. And yeah, is, it, is there, is there anything else out there to go, you know, Chapek can go acquire to go put his stamp on the company? I don't know. It, it just seems another business type in a position that, uh, I think all of us would prefer to see more of a creative type, uh, in that role. And with, with the checks and balances behind that creative type to make the proper and correct business decisions behind those ideas. 
Well, I mean, most successful airlines have CEOs who are not pilots. And most successful computer companies have CEOs who are not software developers. Um, so I think if they delegate creative decisions to creative people. That's not a problem. I agree. Right. And that's certainly where I was going to go. Um, you know, the question is the, the, the sort of illuminated aspect of Iger's comment there is that that's easy to gloss over if you're not being careful is that it's, there's a big difference between not being a creative person who thinks they're a creative person and not being a creative person <laughs> who acknowledges that they're not a creative person. Those are hugely different in the real world in terms of how it plays out. You know, if you're like, if you're willing to, to, you know, give up the reins to the people who do, who make the trains run on time, you know, it's so hard to have this conversation without, you know, using idioms and metaphors, but whatever. The shoes run on time. What, oh, are, they, are they, are they on painted tracks or no. real tracks? <laughs> you know, whatever it is. Train and is, simulator. And I, and I think that this is maybe part of the problem with Disney. I, I spoke, I mentioned earlier that I, I teach a class that's an introductory business class. And one of the things that they have to do, the students have to do, which is really the hardest thing is write, sort of an in-depth analysis of a company, a Fortune 500 company that they pick. And I actually don't let them do Disney. And the reason is because Disney is in so many things that it's really, it exceeds the capacity of an undergraduate to do a, a, a good job at because you can't even identify easily what industry Disney's in. And it does make me wonder to some degree if if the if all of the the bucket of things that Disney had couldn't be enhanced in the collective by divesting some of them into their own organizations. Um, because what's good for the film division is not necessarily good for the parks and vice versa. And when they're all under the same umbrella, it's just so easy to, uh, you, you know, bias all of your decision-making toward the, you know, the new hotness to where you hurt other valuable contributors to the organization. So I don't know. Part of me wonders if Disney wouldn't be better off if it were split up in a more fundamental way than it is just by having divisions within a single company. You hit on something about being an executive versus being a creative and recognizing the limits of your knowledge base. Uh, We may be frustrated with some of the creative decisions under Bob Iger. Uh, I think the what we want to see is not necessarily parks that are exempt uh, of having IP. We want to see the best attractions possible without the restrictions put on them. Exactly. That uh, yeah. so there was a uh, a Jim Hill article that he wrote probably twenty years ago, talking about the uh, what Islands of Adventure would mean to the Disney parks. Basically, the prediction of theme park wars. And what he would, what they're hoping, uh, the Imagineers are hoping would come from Michael Eisner if Islands of Adventure was wildly successful. And so I'm going to read a snippet of that. Uh, he, uh, Michael Eisner would turn to the Imagineers and say, make the best attractions you can. (laughs) Not, not make the best attractions you can in a limited budget, not make the best attractions you can with minimal changes to the pre existing ride building, not, uh, make the best attractions, uh, that reflect the sponsor's agenda. Just make the best attractions you can, period. Yep. Um, that's what we want here. We want the creative people to allowed to, to be allowed to be creative. And we've said for a variety of reasons that if you're given a mandate, if you're given, you've got to put this in this building and with this structure, you're going to be hamstrung a little bit. Um, that that to, quote that you – oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, to, to that point, uh, 
Jack over at the DSNY newscast talked about this briefly, that there is the possibility that as a new CEO, he wants to put his own stamp on the company. And he very well could deviate from what he's been doing, what his uh, approach has been is of towing the company line. And he might have a totally different vision. We don't know that yet. And perhaps that's us wishful thinking. But I, I doubt that he is going to fully live out Iger's vision, whatever that may be. I think he's going to have to have his own spin on things. And it's called sell the company to Amazon. He could sell it to Amazon. Amazon's going to own us all sooner or later anyway. It's fine. Um, At least I can have it tomorrow by 10 a.m. <laughs> But, I mean, we, we don't really know, but from what we've seen in the past, that's usually a decent enough predictor. We are probably going to see more of the same. We're probably going to see a lot more intellectual properties in the parks, but hopefully at least some spending in the parks. That This latest wave is not the uh, the end of it. Let, let's run with this for a minute. Let, let's imagine for a minute that, that he is a not only narcissistic, but insane Okay. Which, which I don't think, I'm sure that only one of those is true, and it's not the insanity. Um, it could be fun. What is the worst case scenario in the next 36 months? Frozen in Norway? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, rewind no. back 10 years, and you had that mentality of, like, what do they do? They bastardize certain areas. So, like, you have the Muppets take over the American adventure. Like, things like that. Um, but I mean, moving forward, it, I mean, let's, we're a blue sky show, right? That's what we're all about is like, let's, <laughs> so how do we fuck up the parks? Well, uh, but, so I mean, sink, but I mean, we, I, we sink boats, we break doom buggies, <laughs> we crash TTA trains. What else do you want to do? Don't bury the lead, Ben. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I think to me, the most likely risk when I look at a guy like Chapek, who is a budget minded probably we would call him fiscally conservative with respect to the parks. The biggest threat is probably not the transformation of pavilions, but the neglect of them. That, that, that would be my concern. And it seems that, you know, if already it was evidence of neglect for the past week, well, haunted mansion <laughs> might have ironically killed itself. The, the thousandth ghost is now in there and it's, it's its own ride system, ironically. So, you know, I, I think, you know, Disney's sort of in this weird situation where, it's old, you, yeah. you know, it's, they have been this incredibly successful place and it's real easy to forget that these are machines. These are buildings that these are just physical objects that exist in the real world that wear out. And as they become older, as anyone who's, you know, first or second car was not a new car can attest, you know, you get two, 300,000 miles on these things and they, they break. And, um, you know, it does con- that. That would be my concern: is that is this is the Disney reputation that we have as a place that is extraordinarily well kept? Is it going to be like Disneyland was at its low point, where it was, you know, uh, just basically coming apart at the seams? That that's what concerns so me. So you have the, yeah, you have those Disneyland neglect time periods. Yep. Um, where uh, Space Mountain almost killed people, um, and then they they as an emergency shut it down for two years and rebuilt the attraction. Um, we have our fair share of culprits in Walt Disney World of things that could potentially do that. Yep. Like a monorail door could fall off and somebody could fall out. Hypothetically. Things like that. Uh, those are the types of possible concerns here where uh, for somebody that likes to slash budgets, maintenance is often the first thing to go. Preventative maintenance is one of them. And that was a big problem. 10 to 15 years ago, and they seemed to have corrected this, this last week, notwithstanding. But right. some of those major things, like the monorail fleet, has been neglected for far too long. And 
we've seen the tendency to neglect to the point where replacing it with anything, uh, just from an attraction standpoint, um, is well received. And that's been a strategy as well. So we could see that. And I don't know if we would, if we would welcome neglect over poor creative decisions. I don't know what the, uh, what, what, what the, uh, I hope that there's an option C on the menu there. <laughs> it might not be. It might not be. I mean, we could be doom and glooming here, but we could um, be. You know, it's also the, hard. To, all the stuff, they're all trailing indicators. You know, uh, if like Matt, I, I talked about Haunted Mansion, which had a problem, you know, if something terribly goes wrong, something terrible happens in a week, you know, there's going to be people who uh, who lack analytical thinking skills and go, well, this is a JPEG issue. You know, it's yeah. going to be hard to know at what point if things get better, at what point do we is it correct to attribute those to him? You know, if things go terribly wrong, at what point is it correct to attribute those to him? You know, it's, that, that stuff's kind of hard to do. Right. It's definitely, it's not a, an exact science, but if you look at the first half of the Iger administration, um, people complained about what he didn't do for the parks. And then he started paying attention to the parks and we complained about that too. So <laughs> it, it was a matter of like, all right, do you neglect them uh, and put in the bare minimum or do you do things that people aren't necessarily a fan of? And we right. say that as if it's all been bad. There has been some exceptional additions to the park under Iger. Um, and I don't know if it's in spite of him or because of him. Um, the issues that we've had are that it isn't always build the best thing you can. No. And that's, that's what it should be. That's what it should be in all aspects of a creative company. And we see them doing very good in the box office, but it's not necessarily like build the most innovative movie that you can or, or, or uh, sorry, make the most innovative movie that you can. Oftentimes it's, we're going to make a billion dollars by remaking something that was successful 20 years ago. Yeah. And if you look in the grand scheme of what Bob Iger actually created, under his uh, under his watch, there isn't much. It's Disney animation yeah. uh, and a handful of Pixar things that were under his watch, but most of it are other source material that other people created. But that I, he bought. I, I agree with that, and I think there's another complexity there. You said that not everything that that Iger did was bad. Not only that, but much of what Bob Iger did in the parks that we consider to be bad is loved by millions of people. And that's part of the problem when you're serving an audience of tens or hundreds of millions of people is that, um, you know, I, I think part of our concern is that with Chapek is not that he's going to piss off everybody. That's almost certainly <laughs> not the case. If that were the case, he'd get ousted, right? I think our concern is that are we in a demographic that he doesn't care about? That That's... That's probably the biggest threat the to us. The things that we complain about, though, like the, the if you want to play uh, what did Tim, Josh, and Ben complain about bingo, <laughs> it's things like uh, putting characters in Epcot. It's putting things where they don't necessarily belong, yep. forcing things where they don't necessarily belong. I don't think objectively we have any issue with Frozen Ever After. We have an issue with its placement. Right. And it's it's things like that that matter to us people and us and, and our niche. But your average park guest might not necessarily fully understand that this doesn't fit with the non-linear storytelling that is World Showcase. Right. That putting a uh, fantasy land attraction in a somewhat grounded in reality area doesn't necessarily make logical sense. And I think that but, most people probably didn't understand why Disneyland and Disney World worked in the beginning, but it did. It's like mm -hmm. when you go to a good movie or you listen to a good song, most people aren't musicians or storytellers, but they know a good they know 
you know, a good song is a good song. You don't have to be a musician to appreciate it. And that that's my concern is that how long it's not just that Frozen doesn't belong in, in future or in a world showcase. It's that when once you decide that placemaking is no longer a barrier to positioning attractions, w- what is the 10 year implication of that? Because if, right. if in 10 years you end up with a place that is disjointed, then you have this sort of irreversible and very significant problem in the park that people are going to notice. And that then when things are then disjointed, what do you do? it costs them a billion and a half dollars to fix it. Yeah. And they don't always do it. Right. Um, so t- to that point, there was something that was brought to my attention that I didn't really think about. But the people that complained about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge going to Disneyland, uh, I, I never heard it clearly articulated why and, until recently. And the why was that all of Disneyland is it, it's, it's supposed to be like positive versions of whatever it is, be it an adventure land, be it a frontier land, be it fantasy land. They're all supposed to be positive outlooks on it galaxy's edge is a literal war zone and that's the opposition to it not necessarily (laughs) creatively but the area is intended to be an area of conflict whereas that doesn't exist anywhere else i'm pretty sure mr toad took you to hell (laughs) right but the but the idea of the attraction itself uh yes fair point mr toad (laughs) does take you to hell but Fantasyland itself the setting of Fantasyland is not an area of conflict yeah. Um, and I, I thought that was an interesting point. And I think that uh, Star Wars and probably Marvel would be better suited as anchors to a third gate out there. But if the infrastructure required for a third gate would have doubled the price of those investments, I get not wanting to do that. Um, hmm. it, was an, it was an interesting point. I don't necessarily agree with the fact that it shouldn't have been put in there because I don't know that they sacrificed much that meant anything to me. Well, at but least, it probably meant something to other people. At least it's an explanation. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. it's better than having none, which which I agree with it's you. Like, I, yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, um, okay, that's so. not logic. That's, those aren't facts. Those are opinions. So at least, you know, that's it's defensible, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought that was an interesting approach to it. But um, we say that, and uh, last show or the show before that, we were talking about Rise of the Resistance in great detail and by all accounts, it is the best thing Disney has done under Iger without question from an attraction standpoint and possibly creatively ever. That there is so much that they've roped into that uh, as an experience that as much as we have bad-mouthed um, Bob Iger and Bob Chapek, Chapek was in charge of the Parks and Resorts, Bob Iger was in charge of the company, and they created that. Is that uh, counting emotional whirlwind, though? Yeah, well, that's that's number one, and this is like second to that. Okay. Uh, I, I just it just popped into my head that in 2070 there's going to be a podcast about how they replaced Rise of the Resistance with a meet and greet. <laughs> uh, that at one point though, uh, kind of following up what you just said there, uh, Tim. Have they have they said anything with the reshuffling of the deck chairs after uh, this move of Shapek <laughs> into the CEO spot because? I don't think there's any doubt that Chapek had a lot of say and a lot of pull in his position over the parks. Who backfills that position? How, what, what is there somebody in the company that then moves up into that spot that maybe has that outlook that we appreciate a little bit more than what Chapek had in that spot for the last several years? What about that Josh D'Amato guy? So that was, that name was thrown around, yeah. and then people dismissed it. Uh, again, this is just me reading WW Magic, um, saying. Yes, my my post on there. I was arguing with myself. (laughs) I don't think that counts. That's not a citation, Tim. (laughs) Red Sox 
fan one said. To, to quote a genius. <laughs> um, I mean, he has the experience leading the parks. I don't see a real reason why he couldn't. Um, the other name that I heard was uh, Matt Wiemet, um, who oh, yeah. used to be in Disneyland. Yeah. Yep. Um, and where is he now? Cedar Fair? Cedar Fair, yeah. Yeah. Um, His name starts with an O, by the way. So if you try yes. to look him up, don't do not do it phonetically. You will not find him. And I believe that's the correct way to pronounce it. It is. Um, it's, but it's yeah. O-U-I-M-E-T. Um, and he is, he's currently not with the company, but did work for Disneyland and Within the last I don't know, fifteen, oh, years I believe or so. he was one of the people who spearheaded the renaissance of Disneyland yes. after it was yes, in absolutely. disrepair. Like he, he received a lot of credit. That's how. That's the only way I know his name. And from the, uh, what's that podcast? That season pass podcast. He's yeah, on that yeah. sometimes. And I, as far as I'm concerned, either of those two people would probably be a step in the right direction. Alternatively, if they were to go with somebody like Bob Weiss, who I mentioned earlier, uh, that is a longtime Imagineer. Um, I would love to have a creative person in that role, but mm-hmm. I think Disney's um, structure now is to have a uh, an executive in that role. And I do think there is a component of under Iger and hopefully under Chapek of them going to creatives and letting the creatives make decisions. We talked about this with Scott Trowbridge. We assumed that it was an executive decision that the setting of the Star Wars uh, land was in the new trilogy, but it sounded like it was a Scott Trowbridge creative decision. I still um, believe that. But but if if that is the case, that they are letting creatives, scooter. <laughs> if they're letting creatives create, albeit with some uh, some some governors on them. Um, I, I think okay you need that. I, I support. I think that's actually the, yep. the correct decision. Yeah. But the it's the it's the nature of those governors that we object to. It's we want you to build a Star Wars land. That's something that I think people can get passionate about. But it's something like we want you to replace uh, an existing attraction in Epcot with something that has an intellectual property tied to it, and it's got to fit into this building. And you have sixteen dollars to do it. Like those are the types of things that we object to. I think so. the challenge is Eisner alone is a problem. Uh, you know. Wells alone is a problem. The two of them together yeah. is magic. Uh, you know, I, what I think will probably dictate to a large degree what the Chapek legacy looks like are the people that he's immediately surrounded by. Yeah. 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 Hopefully it's not a bunch of yes men. Um, why don't we move away from that? Hire me. I, I argue with everything. <laughs> I've noticed. Uh, <laughs> ben, you have some uh, unique insight, I'm assuming, into uh, the sinking of a Jungle Cruise boat. I do. Um, what can you tell us about the ride system itself? What likely happened here? Uh, how many times you've flooded one of these boats? Uh, that sort of thing. I have no clue. Okay, <laughs> I, fair enough. I, Good talk. I, I actually had, I had, I, I had this talk with my wife. I don't know. I, I don't know how you could sink one of those boats without taking water on, you know, underneath. I, 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 That's what I think happened. I think it came in on the side. I don't think it came came up over the side. I think it came in. It had to be a leak inside that just slowly kept sinking down and down and down. And as, as a boat was loaded on there, because that water's not very deep. I think you probably saw from the evacuation process that, uh, you know, you're looking waist deep in, in maybe some areas, but it's, it's not a very deep area. They were able to step over the side, uh, some of the people were wearing waders covering their legs to, to get in there. But uh, yeah, it had to be something that just was taking on water for probably an extended period of time. 
and finally just hit its breaking point with the a, ride's uh, only ten minutes. I mean, aren't like, these aren't these vehicles? I, I've seen pictures of them with the with the ride system drained, and it seems like mm-hmm. they function. They're sort of a hybrid between a car and a boat. I mean, they actually ride through a trough on a wheel. Do they not? Right. Yes. So yes. there's a there's a finite degree to which they can sink because the the tire is just going to hit the ground. So my thought was that if that little leg, that sort of it's not an axle, but whatever that sort of protrusion is, that sort of a keel looking thing that has the wheel on it, yeah. If that broke off, then obviously it could sink further. That that was the only thing yeah. I could think of that would even make this possible because it seems like if you even if you drained all the water out of the thing, it's not going to sink. You know, in, in the traditional no. sense, this thing, this thing broke. Is that is that trough load bearing? You, I mean, I, I don't know. Water on either end yeah, of it, I like don't... it's giving it additional support. Yeah, there's certainly but... some buoyancy there, but it seems like yeah, it's certainly load bearing. It's certainly load bearing laterally because that's what turns mm-hmm. the boat. You know, right. whether it's load bearing in terms of compression, if it's something that's supposed to keep the boat at a certain height, that I could only guess, and I don't really know. Yeah. Yeah, really? has anybody seen anything else about, like, I haven't seen stories of, like, when they noticed it was taking on water, how fast it took on the water. It had, all I've seen was the, the end, the right. evacuation, and some of the pictures of the people stepping up, you know, on the boxes, trying to keep their feet dry, essentially. That's what I saw as well. Uh, I, I need a little bit more context. I'm surprised, actually, we haven't heard more or seen more of they did how a, fast they did a good, this all happened. They did a good job of hushing this one up. I'll give them that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if we knew the speed of it, it would probably give us a little bit better idea of maybe how this happened. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it is. It's one of those things. If it's a small crack somewhere under the underside of the boat that's taking it on into the, uh, the, 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 the cavities of the, the boat that you're just not visibly sinking, and then all of a sudden you're noticing that you're getting a little bit lower to the water levels until it's actually going over the sides, uh, you know, it could have been. It could have taken on, you know, through several rides before they before it got to the point but, where the water was coming up over the side, or like you said, something could have broken. It went down quick and 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 took on the water very fast. As a skipper, the one question I think everyone needs to know the answer to is: if your boat started to sink and people are like bailing over the side, do you make a little joke about them drowning? Or do you, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's when you go. Remember when I said I was going to be your swimming instructor? And you just look, <laughs> that's, that's that's why you put that joke out there early. Uh, so to that point, Ben, because you we we've talked about doing a like pick Ben's brain uh, on the Jungle Cruise type episode, and this isn't necessarily going to be that. I think we want to do a longer form version of it, but perhaps we can ask for listener questions on that. We can have this be a jumping off point. Um, have you ever experienced water coming up over the side when no. skippering a boat? Not even Could, close. The only time. I've ever had water hit the boat was like during my second or third time when I uh, overshot the uh, squeeze play with the elephants and took a little water on in the front, which I think every skipper has done at one point. You didn't okay. time it just right, but uh, no, not even close to having water. Uh, what about the backside of water? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel that there, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that there is a corner in the Jungle Cruise where like, you can maybe not necessarily get out of the track, but potentially take on water, not necessarily to the extent of a boat sinking, but water can come over the side. So when, and you actually practice this when you're uh, learning to drive the boats and actually it was a bit more, but the old boat style and the new one, because the new one's so big and so much heavier, but the old boats, 
if you hit the spot where the lions are eating the zebra, mm-hmm. there there is a little corner right there that that boats had hit that spot too fast and it can jump the track. Okay. Uh, next time you ride that, notice how the skipper shifts their weight from leg to leg while they're standing up because you can. Uh, if you're not paying attention, you can knock yourself off balance because you hit that corner so hard. It's just a little uh, jet out where where uh, the rocks are coming out far enough, and, and they have to do that so you're taking on the view of the totem pole uh, mm-hmm. properly afterwards. But that is definitely a spot where the boat will lean to the left, and I guess if the water was high enough, Maybe you could, you know, <laughs> take a little on. So I felt that like, it's impossible. come within maybe three to four inches of coming over the side, which yeah. which That's, still is a ways away from it coming over the side. If you've ever I been can, sailing on a small boat, you see that all the time. I can tell you, like, even even Schweitzer Falls, when you're taking the hard right, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, a, it's a gradual enough turn that you can take that full speed and you're going to be just fine. You're not even okay. going to be close to hitting anything hard, but... During training, the one spot that that we were specifically told to watch out for was that part at the Savannah scene uh, by by the lions and the zebra. Uh, And to take that spot, you know, pretty easy. Go into that uh, throttle down, go into that easy, and then then you can throttle back up. There was no other spot on the track where we were warned to uh, be careful. Now, there is a... uh, Right where Trader Sam is, that's the switch to take the boats uh, off stage and go right. back. And if you, you know, obviously, if you're not paying attention at the switch, uh, I have seen boats come off the track there because the track literally wasn't there for them to take. <laughs> and uh, that uh, that happened a couple times. Uh, and so that is another spot where 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 you can get off track. But those are the only two that are that are specific, specifically pointed out to you during training to be careful of. So you mentioned that area. I believe in Disneyland there are lights on the shield probably denoting whether or not it's safe to go forward. Yep. Where a, are those lights on uh, the Florida version? There's a lantern uh, just a little bit past – I believe it's past Trader Sam on that side. Mm-hmm. It's either on that side or it's on, on the other side. There is a lantern that's a white light that, that gives you your signal of if the track is on or if the track is off. You're also at that point where the skipper on the dock should be giving you a hand sign to be looking out for yeah. that as well. But this there, is something, there is, there's a light that this is very interesting signal. stuff. We, we definitely need to delve deeper into is. this. Like this is cool. And perhaps stuff. we make this a separate show because there are things and not just exclusive to the jungle cruise where Disney hides signals like that in plain sight. They combine it in with the decor of the attraction, probably better than anybody. Um, I know Toy Story Mania is a good example of this, where they use those strung up Christmas lights, and they mean something. The sequences that are going on there mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, uh, to to load and unload things. But um, why don't we shelve this, but call for more Jungle Cruise related questions uh, and, for a future and show? To let the fans know, uh, and I shared it with you guys, I found my script from training. So I have an original beginning to end full blown jungle cruise script from the summer of uh, 2000 that we can uh, go through. And I know we've talked about it in the past, but actually tell you guys some of the alternate takes on the jokes and some of the, <laughs> some of the ones that I picked out. I actually, uh, it's, it, it is kind of funny as I thumb back through it after I sent you guys the picture, I have circles around the jokes that I picked for my spiels. So, uh, and not that I, I mean, you do it enough. I, I literally could sit here and do my entire spiel for you right now. Uh, but it's, it's fun getting inside my own head, uh, remembering when I had that script for the first time and reading each one and going, 
I want to use this one, I want to use that one, and we can get to that a little bit more and go through some of the good takes and some of the really, really, really bad jokes that are in there that, <laughs> that many have never heard before. With that, uh, if you do have Jungle Cruise-specific questions for us, uh, we'll open up a Facebook conversation to that effect. Also, you can email us, martycall.gmail.com. Uh, and you can send any other questions or topic ideas there, but we'll ignore those. We'll pay attention to the Jungle Cruise <laughs> ones. Um, you can follow us on Twitter under the username at martycalled. Uh, primarily, I am pushing for the uh, WW Fanboys uh, back catalog of uh, shows. I'm sure that's annoying people. And if it is, uh, by all means, tell me and I will stop. Um, our Facebook stop. group is <laughs> facebook.com slash groups slash Marty called. Um, I also uh, did a podcast, the a podcast for all things, but mostly Disney with Jalen, Chris, Erica, and I attempt to solve racism. Uh, spoiler alert, we don't. Um, we would appreciate our listeners. Is it true that the world is more racist after you did it? Uh, probably not. Well, actually, it might be unrelated, but yes. Way to go. Uh, <laughs> unrelated, my uh, ass. I blame you. Um, appreciate our listeners bookmarking your Amazon affiliate links over on martycalled.com. I think you can buy uh, our Irish car bombs on there for St. Patrick's Day. It uh, doesn't cost you anything, but helps fund the show with purchases you are going to make anyway. Uh, ben, where can we find you online? You can find my Skipper Ben Top 10 columns in every issue of Attractions Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Real Skipper Ben. You can find my uh, Disney uh, Classic Remember When account also on Twitter at Remember When WDW. And I'll continue posting pictures of random buttons to our Facebook group under my burner account. <laughs> Josh, same question. <laughs> This guy can't even work a microphone. He's he's working for Time (laughs) Life over here. Fucking National Geographic. That's interesting. (laughs) Ben, say bye. Say goodbye, Ben. Ben says goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. Killer ending. Two O's, the second O for savings. Get all that? <laughs>